Welcome to this GemTrain.org presentation, where you will be able to enjoy some wonderful free content that we sincerely hope will help you overcome the challenges of autism. Some content from this presentation is not included here, but the entire presentation is available on our website, GemTrain.org. Jared Stewart, and I'm 43 years old, and for the last 20 years I've been working with individuals on the spectrum. And in the course of that work, I was, and the fact that my youngest brother was diagnosed with autism, I was also able to come to the realization that I myself had autism. And so I have a master's degree in education, but a special educator. I have won national awards for teaching, for speaking. Um, and this is my passion. I love to talk to people who are working with people with autism, people who are on the spectrum themselves. Um, and my hope is that through that talking that people can come away with a better perspective of what autism is, what it isn't, and the hope that there can be for every person who has autism. Every autistic person has so much potential, so many things they can offer, and finding ways to tap that potential, maximize that potential, and help them to have a quality of life, that to me is, is the greatest thing in the world. And so I'm an administrator at Scenic View Academy in Provo, Utah, help run a school for adults on the autism spectrum, uh, ages 18 plus, where we work to get them out with a job, an apartment, an education. And I'm an adjunct professor in the evenings at Utah Valley University, where I teach classes for incoming freshmen that are on the autism spectrum and for uh, those that are in the autism studies program. So yeah, this kind of, I eat, sleep and breathe it. Um, I'm a child of parents on the autism spectrum. I have siblings on the autism spectrum. I have a son who's not officially diagnosed, but he's autistic. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just that, those are my days. When I feel like I can actually connect with that person and help them to see either themselves or the world in a slightly more effective way. Um, when people are starting to say they have a clear goal, that they're making progress toward it, that they're becoming their best self, then that's when I feel like this is, this is the greatest job to have in the world. And those are the days where I'm making a difference. I got into education because I wanted to make a difference. And, and so often in the public school system, my my years teaching junior high were just horrible. There were so many kids and, and you barely got to know their names. And then being able to come to uh, a division of education where I could really focus on making a difference for the one, that, that to me was what it was all about. So if I can help one person to have a slightly better life and to be excited about learning and about growing and about continuing to keep trying and picking themselves up when they fall down, then I've, I've made the difference that I want to make, and it was a good day. So what is autism? Uh, autism is a neurodevelopmental delay. Um, it's characterized by difficulties with communication, with socialization, with being able to build and maintain relationships, um, with adherence to rigid routines and stereotypical movements or, or noises. Uh, there's a sensory element to autism where people are either over or under sensitive to things. Um, and there's uh, just kind of a general difference between how that person with autism and their brain 
experiences the world, views the world, and responds to the world. Um, one of the more uh, emerging terms for autism and for related issues is neurodiversity. Neurodiversity just meaning different brains, different minds. Um, and autism is definitely a different mind. It's a different mindset, it's a different way of looking at the world. Um, there's a great saying that is, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And so because of the uniqueness of autism, how it looks for each person, they talk about autism as a spectrum where people can be all different kind of types or even flavors of autism all across the spectrum on any given dynamic. And a good rule of thumb for autism is that it's a disorder of extremes, that on any given dynamic, autism is gonna just struggle to find that middle ground. Anything else though, they may go all this way or all that way. Um, with sensory sensitivities, they may be way oversensitive in one area and way undersensitive to another sensory modality. With any kind of um, cognitive ability, speaking or social ability, um, motor skills, all of those things, autism tends toward extremes. Um, and because of those extremes, especially in childhood, especially because the person is uh, neurologically delayed, they're not physically delayed. So physically, they're exactly you know, right on track with their peers. Um, but mentally and socially, emotionally, they're gonna be a bit behind. Um, a good rule of thumb is the, what I call the rule of two thirds. This hasn't been seriously researched too much, but generally in, in the hundreds of people that I've worked with with autism, as a good rule of thumb, you can imagine that they're about two thirds of their chronological age in terms of social emotional development. So that's really great for me in my 40s, um, but you know, it can be really hard for a child that's in elementary school, junior high, high school, young adulthood, when they're just feeling so far behind their peers uh, in so many different ways. So yeah, autism's constantly emerging. It's, it's very invisible. You can't tell someone's autistic by looking at them. Um, you often can't tell by talking to them. Um, but despite how unique it is, there's definitely some common threads and uh, tends to be a kind of a common life story of certain struggles that they've had and, and being able to overcome those or not uh, really defines a lot of the kind of quality of life that they'll have as an adult. There's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about autism. Um, myths about, oh, people with autism don't have any empathy, um, when that's not true at all. In fact, just like anything else, it's kind of that extreme where you'll have them have, it may seem like they have very little empathy in a given situation, but a lot of times what's going on is they actually have hyper empathy where they're just actually over responding to the other person's emotional state. And then their response to that may not be what a neurotypical person or a person who doesn't have autism would expect. And so it looks to the neurotypical or normal person, but the person with autism doesn't have the empathy when in reality, they may actually have too much empathy. Um, I remember when I was a child, uh, every single week we would watch different strokes because I'm just really old. It was a great show, and I would watch about 10, 15 minutes of the episode, and Arnold, played by Gary Coleman, would get himself into some horrible mess, and I would run out of the room, because at this point, now I'm feeling all nervous and scared for poor Gary Coleman, and I never saw the end of any episode of Different Strokes, because I couldn't handle that. Um, so the hyper-empathy is definitely there. I was talking with someone with autism who's uh, in their 70s, who used to always love watching Star Wars and Harry Potter and that stuff. And I uh, asked, you know, hey, how's, how's this going? And he's like, oh, I, I got rid of all that stuff. And I was like, well, what happened? And he's like, oh, it's, it's too much for me. 
It's like, you've seen those movies literally like thousands of times. He's like, yeah, I just, I just can't handle it anymore. It's too much for me. So just the hyper empathy still going. Um, on the research side, the scientists will talk about what's called mirror neurons, where which that part of the brain that fires, that says, oh, hey, you know, what this person's experiencing, you're also experiencing. And for a long time, it was thought that they were broken for people with autism, and that might be the source of this apparent lack of empathy. But what they're showing now is actually, they were always there and they're just firing differently. And actually by the time that they hit 30, they've caught up with the neurotypical person in terms of the, the number and the wiring of their mirror neurons. And then after that, they actually exceed the number of mirror neurons of, of neurotypicals. And so hyperempathy is definitely something that you'll see and it'll cause a lot of those socially inappropriate, supposedly inappropriate responses uh, are because the person is hyper-empathetic and now they're just being overwhelmed and overloaded. And so they may laugh when they're supposed to be crying or they may have the right response, but it's delayed because um, they had to really process it through a few times and be like, oh wait, this is how the world is gonna expect me to show that. And so they'll show it, but a little later. But it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, and the same would go for any other kind of emotional thing. Um, a lot of times people with autism struggle to identify their own emotions. It's called alexithymia in the, the cadence of the clinicians, but it's just that struggle, that ability to be able to put into words what's going on in their mind and emotionally. Uh, again, doesn't mean they don't have those emotions, just mean they may be occurring very quickly, or they may be occurring in a way that doesn't seem to fit any of the definitions that they've seen in a textbook somewhere. And so it's hard for them to identify what that emotion is. Neurotypical is a way of referring to people who have a typical neurology or a typical brain. Uh, it's kind of a nice way of saying normal, as if there was such a thing as normal. When in reality, if you looked at a bell curve and you had someone who fit every single category exactly on that median line, they would be abnormal by definition. There's no one who's exactly average on everything. And so the idea of normality is, is kind of um, not really very applicable, but neurotypical at least says that like, oh, as opposed to someone who has an autistic brain um, who's neurodiverse, neurotypical would say they're in that, that general majority when it comes to um, brain function and the way that they respond and view the world, whereas autism would be neurodiverse in that it, the brain is responding differently to those, those stimuli. So when the person with autism kind of goes out and tries to deal with neurotypical society, um, it's very much uh, Temple Grandin, very famous person, obviously on the autism spectrum. Temple Grandin talks about feeling like an anthropologist from Mars, that she's suddenly this scientist in this foreign culture. And that's very much what it feels like. I, I lived in Japan years ago and just learning to adapt to that culture taught me a lot about adapting to neurotypical culture and um, just trying to be able to navigate where people are going to see things differently, value things differently, and have different rules of behavior than what you would naturally intuit. And so it's almost like people with autism, we're kind of foreigners in our own culture. And as a result of that, we often feel very uncomfortable, just like you would if you were in a foreign culture where you're wanting to relate and you're wanting to, but you always feel like you're kind of a little out of the loop. You know you're not quite in that group you know that you're struggling a little to connect or to know the nuances of the language or the words that you're using. Um, and that's for people with autism who are verbal and who can talk. For those who are nonverbal, they feel even more kind of excluded because by the time they come up with something to say or a way to say it, the conversation has moved on so much further. And so there's very much that feel of being a visitor in your own culture. Um, and on top of that, the sensory issues often make 
um, even normal type situations, um, very uncomfortable for the person with autism. I often will tell audiences that like, you know, I could give you autism. If you want to know what it's like to have autism, I'll come into the room here. I'm going to crank the temperature up to 130 degrees and I'm going to put this great big annoying alarm going on in the background and I'm going to give you a math test while I, you know, poke you and rub you with sandpaper. And, and we'll see, and all of a sudden your communication skills will go away, you'll have trouble maintaining relationships, and even you'll start you know, having some strange motor reactions and strange sensory experiences, and you may struggle to learn and to communicate in those environments. And that's often how it is. As one gets older with autism, the sensory issues tend to get better, and that tends to help a little bit. Um, but being able to know how that unique person with autism, how their sensory issues are going should be the fundamental level of any intervention or interaction that you have with them is trying to figure out sensorily, biologically, what is going on with this person. And even before you start attributing things to the autism itself, start looking at that. And that will often be the most effective way to create an intervention for that person and to help them be able to succeed in the environment. So if you're the person with autism trying to cope with a neurotypical world, and that, I mean, that's the key. The neurotypical world, we're hopeful that as more people learn about autism, they can adjust, they can be flexible, they can learn to accept. Um, but the person with autism, the autistic person is also gonna need coping skills to deal with that neurotypical world. Um, just as if you are that anthropologist in a foreign culture, you can't just expect everybody there to speak your language. You can't just expect everybody there to cater to your food needs. Um, but you can make requests. And so learning to make those requests is the first coping skill to be able to advocate. And yet before you can self-advocate, you need to be accepting of your role as that foreigner in the culture. You need to be accepting of the autism. And before you can do that, you need to be self-aware. So often we'll talk about that kind of pyramid of self-awareness, self-acceptance, and finally self-advocacy. And so working, the first coping skill you need is self-awareness. So the person with autism needs to be aware of how they're neurodiverse and how that neurodiversity affects things. And it can be very, very simple as, as writing a social story for a child or very, very complex, like talking about, you know, the history of the autism diagnosis and, and even, you know, how some of these instruments of testing work with, you know, the adult who's really interested in that or wanting to hear about that. But once they're self-aware, and it may be as simple as, oh, when you make those noises, it's hard for everybody else to listen. Or, you know, when you're flapping your hands, it's very hard for uh, the person next to you to pay attention. Um, or it causes the person next to you to get scared or uncomfortable. Um, that self-awareness level, then the person can begin to accept and they can learn to accept and also then to self-advocate so others can accept uh, and keep going. But as you're accepting your autism, you also then have to work on that advocacy side. How does that look when you're learning to cope? Well, it looks like having some type of sensory um, things taken into account. So do you have the right clothing, the right wardrobe clothing? Do you have um, the right diet? Do you have um, the right social skills? Can you make the right facial expressions? Um, so it goes from different levels, from very, very simple ones of trying to deal with, you know, the sensory and getting the sensory out of the way, all the way up to very abstract skills, like how, how to relate to somebody else and hold a conversation. But all of those coping mechanisms can be learned as very simple systems. Um, and then those systems can be gradually built on until the person can do 
whatever else they need to do to be able to cope with being in a neurotypical world. Just as if, if you were a foreigner or on an alien planet of some kind, you would start out taking care of your basic needs, making sure that your basic needs were met, but then gradually, depending on how much you wanted to blend with this alien society, you'd building coping skills till you either looked just like the rest of them and talked just like the rest of them, or that you were just enough that nobody's gonna be scared of you, nobody's gonna give you a, a negative reaction. Um, and it's finding that balance for each person as to what's that gonna be, how much is the society going to need to bend and how much can the person bend at this point in their development. And, you know, finding that balance and living, living that. But there are so many coping skills out there now and there's so many great things that are, that are options. Take care of the sensory and then just build in whatever that unique person needs to be able to bridge those gaps and a lot of those coping skills are going to depend on their goals. What is it they want to achieve? Um, if they want, you know, and many people with autism have the same goals as neurotypicals. There's not like a different set of dreams. So most of them want to go to school, get a job, live on their own, get married, have kids, drive a car. All of those things are very normal goals to have. And so, all right, those are their goals. Let's work toward that. And that will take different levels of coping skills. Yeah, it's one of the things about autism that makes it difficult it is an invisible disability. If someone's in a wheelchair, you don't walk up to them and say, come on, get up, let's get going. You know, stand up, come on, you can do this race. You just need to try harder. But when someone has autism, that's often the mindset of, oh, well, you look normal, you sound normal, you, you should be able to do this, this, and this. And I've been married 20 years, and my wife will still be surprised sometimes when there's a social situation or whatever, and I'm like, I, I just can't do that. And she's like, what are you talking about? We've done this, 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 and this, and you should be able to do this too. But on a given day or in a given situation, that may be really difficult. So because it's so invisible and it's hard to spot, um, that makes it hard. I mean, yes, there are people with autism where it's pretty obvious uh, they have motor skill issues, they have speech patterns that are just really distinctive, they're very, very blunt and unsocially aware with what they're saying, um, they have repetitive behaviors with what they're doing with their hands or, you know, their bodies that are obviously outside of that kind of normal nonverbal sphere, and that, that can be obvious. But especially as they get older, most of the time people with autism have learned to mask or conceal those things. So for instance, Sir Anthony Hopkins was diagnosed with autism in his 70s. And if you talk to him about his autism, I've seen a couple interviews where he talks about how, you know, in the movies, you're not gonna be able to tell what he's acting, but outside of the movies, yeah, he was very much not able to be a part of a lot of those social situations or have success in his marriages or as a father in a lot of ways because he lacked those skills and that personal awareness uh, until much later in life. And so as you're seeing someone who's struggling and they seem perfectly normal, they, again, jumping to the conclusion is never going to be helpful regardless of what their issue is. Go find out, go reach out. Um, and in the back of your mind, have that, oh, maybe this is a person with autism and this autistic person struggling with something I'm not aware of. And if I can help understand what that struggle is, maybe I can help this person. And if that person kind of pushes you away, again, don't assume that they're not, you know, that they don't like you. Just assume that, okay, they need to deal with this on their own for right now, and that's absolutely perfectly acceptable. Um, we've all had times where, you know, we've stubbed our toe and we're in tremendous pain. And right then and there, when we're in tremendous sensory pain, uh, having somebody, you know, try to put their arm around you and say, there, it's okay, you know, you're, 
you don't want anybody to touch you well until that pain comes down a little bit and now you're ready to deal with it. Same thing with autism. Um, and just because someone with autism seems to be paying no attention to you or pushing you away, um, either physically or verbally, uh, again, that doesn't mean they don't like you, doesn't mean they don't want your help. So don't give up would be the other thing I would say is keep trying different approaches in a very sensorily neutral way. Approach the person quietly, give them plenty of space, and then, you know, see what you can do. And you may not be able to do anything, and that's okay too. Um, but that, even just that outreach, even just that attempt can be very, very meaningful. We hope you're enjoying this presentation. At any time, we invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum. So also along the lines of the invisibility of autism, what that means is, is as you get kind of the hang of scenting it out and you get that autism radar, you start to realize there's a lot more people than maybe you've you've known uh, before or, or been aware of that are probably on the autism spectrum somewhere. And it may be that weird uncle that, you know, is just always a little off and is telling those weird jokes and has a strange hobby and never did quite get married or that aunt that has that immaculate house and that collection of cat plates. Um, or heck, even if, if you have more than three cats, you're probably on the autism spectrum. There's a lot of love for animals. Um, a lot of love for children, but um, we all know people who have autism uh, and we all know people who haven't been diagnosed, but probably maybe should have. And so, you know, do you need to bring that up with them? Well, it's often a really difficult thing to bring up. And yet uh, Utah, for instance, has one of the top two or three highest rates of autism in the entire country. Um, and in Utah County, you're talking one in 48 people are on the autism spectrum, so over 2%. So in a group of 100 people, we've got minimally two people that are somewhere on the autism spectrum. And, and that means that everybody's gonna know somebody. I guess the good rule of thumb for when to actually try to address this is if someone comes to you and is saying, you know, I'm really, I'm struggling so much with people. They just don't seem to make any sense to me. I'm not getting the results I want with people. Um, you know, or I've got, you know, these these allergies. I've got this um, problems with with you know mood swings. Because a person with autism, again, it's a disorder of extremes. They we can't be just a little bit sad or a little bit angry or even a little bit happy. It's, we're going to go, you know, to that extreme. If you're seeing that kind of constellation of of extremes, sensory issues or or, or sensory tics, sensory sensitivities. Um, if you're seeing that along with the social struggles, then maybe you could say, hey, well, have you considered it might be something like this? Um, if they don't come to you though, then it's really a matter of, is it getting in the way? Um, Jerry Seinfeld is another famous person who's self-diagnosed with autism. Um, and he'll talk about how he sees himself on the autism spectrum, but he's also worth a billion dollars and he doesn't need services. He doesn't need disability. He doesn't need, you know, any of those things. He's fine. And so he would never need to go get an actual diagnosis. So a diagnosis is only a label. There's no blood test. There's no brain scan for autism. It's a series of observations and surveys and examining the person's history. And so if 
they need an autism diagnosis, you have to ask yourself why. Why do they need it? Well, if they need services, if they need insurance, if they need disability, if they need um, to be able to get certain types of therapy that would really be more effective if they knew whether or not they had it, that would be the time to do it. There's a lot of times you'll see children where you're like, I suspect this child has autism. Their behaviors are a little out of the norm, we'll say. Or, um, a lot of times kids with autism are doing what's called elopement where they just run off um, and people have to like, constantly keep an eye on them. They have no real sense of danger. They have no real sense of boundaries. They have no real sense of how they're touching or how loud they're talking or you know anything like that. And sometimes those parents want help and it is completely appropriate to say like, well, if you've got that relationship with, with them, have you considered possibly having your child tested for autism or another neurodiversity? Um, but many parents also don't want to hear that, in which case you can address one symptom at a time, because really that's what you would do anyway with the label is to say, all right, so what's the problem here? Well, the problem is never autism. Autism is not a problem. Autism is a different way of being. It's a different way of seeing the world. The problem is, is how that autism overlaps with neurotypical society. And when there is a difficulty there that's going to cause long-term problems for that person, and their success or for that culture and, and their ability to interact with that person, that's where you want to address. So then you address the elopement, the running away, you address um, the meltdowns, you address you know, the social skills, the physical motor skills, whatever it happens to be, but you only need to address them in where they're getting in the way. Just like any person has a series of strengths and weaknesses, and you only need to address weaknesses insofar as they're getting in the way. I mean, a person may be terrible at basketball, but unless they're planning to do basketball for a career, who cares? You know, it doesn't really matter. And so often there's so much time wasted with people with autism trying to get them to do things like tie their shoes or whatever that are really irrelevant skills. Um, there's a famous um, psychologist that works with autism on the East Coast. His name is Peter Gearhart. And he, I was talking with him one time and he said, you know, I'm so sick of working with adults with autism who can factor a quadratic equation and can't use a public restroom. And, you know, he, he just, we really have to say, well, where does the intervention really need to take place? And it needs to take place only in those areas where their weakness is overlapping with an absolutely needed skill for being able to um, have the quality of life they need to have. So if you're the person with autism and you got to get up in the morning and you know that you're going out into a world that isn't quite going to get you and that despite your best efforts is probably going to have a hard time with accepting you or involving you or even if they do with believing in your potential um, and not kind of underselling you. Um, it's really easy to just not even want to get out of bed in the morning and yet having a system in the morning of being able to get up and run through some questions in your mind about what am I grateful for today? What could I be grateful for? What am I looking forward to today? Or what could I look forward to? Um, how am I gonna make a difference in the world today? With who, how does that feel? How am I learning? How am I growing? How does that feel? Um, what am I excited about learning today? Uh, trying to really move the focus away from all of the scarcity all of the, I don't have enough time, I'm not good enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not 
social enough, I'm not whatever enough. It's so easy to have that kind of deficit mentality in the morning, but switching that over to a, a mentality of, of abundance and of empowerment of, yeah, it's not going to be a perfect day. Yeah, there's going to be things that happen today that aren't going to fit my the expectations of how it should really be, but I'm going to be able to swing with that because I've got the things I'm focusing on and that I'm really working toward. Um, and being able to say, I'm going, I have the skills to be able to tolerate this. I have the support network that I need. Um, I can call on these resources. What resources can I use today? What's going to be a challenge for me today? How can I prepare for that? What resources could I bring to play to help me to deal with that challenge? And being able to then have that plan before you even go out the door is going to really give you a much better shot of having a day that's great. And are there days that are terrible? Of course. There are days where you wish you didn't have to deal with autism or anything that happens to be a difficulty or a neurodiversity. Um, there are times where being different just sucks and it's just hard. But when you go at it with that mindset of, okay, so what am I gonna learn from this? And yeah, some of it's gonna suck, but I'm not giving up because I want to be a part of this world, a part of this culture. I know I have things I can contribute. I know I have things I can do. I know I have goals I want to achieve. and this is just a part of who I am. It's not all of who I am. I'm so much more than this and I can do so much more. Um, that, that attitude is going to obviously set you up for the best possible success for that day. When you have an awful day, you need a system for that too. Um, but then being able to start again that next day and just keep going and day by day knowing that autism is a developmental delay. So it's getting better all the time. And as you continue to work on it, it gets better all the time. Um, Temple Grandin talks about how she's like, I realized that I was in a play, that everybody had their parts and I just needed to learn my role. And if I realize that I'm on stage and I'm in a play every day, I get better and better and better at playing my part and playing my role. And she's like, and my autism gets better and better as I get older. And I found the exact same thing. There's so much hope looking back. Um, let me give you a story of hope. If you don't want to believe me or Temple Grandin, Donald Triplett was a little boy born in 1933 and they didn't have the word autism at the time and they just thought Donald something was wrong with him. Donald was looking at you know things off in space that nobody else was paying attention to. He was drawing circles in the air and mumbling to himself saying nonsense words. He liked to spin himself and he liked to spin things and he seemed to be in his own little world and his parents weren't relating to him and they took him to the doctor and the doctor said oh, we're very sorry Mr. and Mrs. Triplett but your child is hopelessly insane and at three years old he was put into an insane asylum at three. When he was five years old Dr. Connor, you might know if you know anything about autism literature, the man who coined the term autism and had it become a diagnosis, met Donald in the insane asylum. And as he worked with Donald, he said, you know, this child's not insane. His brain definitely works differently, but he's not insane. And so he had Donald taken out of the insane asylum and placed with a foster family of farmers. And Donald, they said, well, what's he good at? And they said, well, he's good with, he's good with numbers. He likes numbers. So they had Donald counting rows of corn. They had Donald, you know, measuring ditches and fences and all this stuff. Because if you're on a farm, you have to work. Doesn't matter what your neurodiversity is. What's fascinating is this. Donald was case one for autism. The diagnosis is based on Donald. Atlantic Magazine went back and tracked him down in his 70s. And he's still alive today. He's in his 80s. And what they found is Donald Triplett, Mr. Autism, graduated high school went to college, 
graduated college. He even participated in fraternities while he was in college. He got a job as a bank teller. He retired as a bank teller. He learned to golf, to drive, to travel the world. Now he didn't start driving until he was 27 and he drove in this little tiny town in Missouri where he lives. But Donald went on and did all of these things. Now he never got married, and but he still had plenty of friends, people who accepted his differences, loved him for who he was. In fact, when Atlantic came in, they were like, well, you're not gonna make fun of Donald, are you? You're not gonna make him look stupid, are you? Donald's smart, Donald's this, you know, and they were very defensive. The whole town kind of gathered around Donald, like, we're not gonna mess with Donald. He got himself a cell phone in his 70s and learned to text. And he just texts everybody all the time now, and he loves it. And he travels the world and he does it by himself because he doesn't want to be around the people. Then he comes back and he takes all of his pictures that he's taken on his trip, develops those pictures, and he prints them out and puts them in scrapbooks. And he still has very rigid routines. His golf swing still looks really weird. And all of these things are still, he's still very autistic. And yet, by any measure, he's had a very full and successful and rich life. There is always hope. There's never a time where someone with autism can't learn one more skill that's going to increase their quality of life. There's never a time where you say, oh, well, the development's done and that's all we're going to get. One great superpower for autism is because it's a developmental delay, the brain continues to develop for much longer than it does for neurotypicals. Um, and neurotypicals are developmentally delayed if you look at it. There's no other animal on Earth that takes 21 years to develop its brain all the way. That developmental delay allows humans to learn all kinds of new and amazing things. Well, autism is even that to the extreme. In fact, Harvard ran a meta-analysis a few years ago to try and see if they could find a single case of diagnosed autism and diagnosed Alzheimer's. And they could not find one case. So it's maybe possible that this brain plasticity that lasts on and on and on into adulthood could even be a superpower um, for people with autism in terms of helping their brains to continue to develop throughout their life. Now, Harvard said take that with a big grain of salt because they're studying an older population that was probably way underdiagnosed for autism. But the, the bottom line being that there's always hope because you're always developing, you're always learning, you're always growing. Um, and therefore, things can and do always get better. Sometimes I get asked whether or not the label of autism bothers me or, or being different or being viewed as different. Um, and, and the truth is, is that I think everybody's different. Uh, everybody has a unique mind and a unique brain. Um, and yet, you know, autism is a label that does mean something. Uh, people can say, oh, well, everybody's a little autistic. And it's like, well, okay, in one sense, that's true. Uh, in the sense of like saying, well, everybody's tall sometimes. You know, if, if you're in any given group, yeah, you might be tall. But if you're, you know, six foot 10, you're going to be pretty much tall all the time. And you're going to have to worry about hitting your head on stuff and buying weird clothing and, you know, all that kind of thing. And so being autistic as a label, I think it's a, it's a powerful thing to be able to say, okay, I am different, but I'm different and that there's nothing wrong with being different. Um, life is so much more than our differences, but yet we can't ignore our differences and we need to find in our differences often our strengths and our uniqueness and the things that are gonna help us to succeed. So if people are viewing the label of autism as a difference, as long as they're viewing it as a positive difference, it doesn't bother me. And likewise, throughout this video, I've used language like person with autism uh, rather than autistic person or um, person on the spectrum. And I know certain audiences, it's offensive, you know, and it's very important what language you use. And I'm sorry if I've offended anybody. It's not my intention. To me, all of these difference labels are only useful in so much as they give us the tools that we need to be able to function in our lives, 
understand ourselves, understand the world around us, and understand how best to relate to each other. Um, differences should never be used to say greater than, less than, more than, or you know that this person is somehow defective or deficient. Different doesn't mean any of those things. Um, and so differences should be very celebrated. Uh, and autism is just one more of those differences that we can celebrate. For myself, when I went to get an autism diagnosis, I was an adult. And so as an adult, I already, you know, had lived a lot of my life, done a lot of things, had a lot of great experiences, bad experiences, successes and failures. And I honestly, at first, wasn't even sure I wanted to go get that label. And yet, what I would say to everyone out there who is considering getting the diagnosis or who has the diagnosis is, it's not something to run from. The label of autism is something to embrace. And it warts and all to say, yeah, okay, so I have these challenges. It's gonna be difficult for me to deal with people, to communicate with people, and to use the right verbal and nonverbal communication. Difficult for me to deal with change. Difficult for me to um, be able to deal with certain sensory situations. But I'm also gonna have all kinds of strengths that I can apply in all kinds of situations. And this is a difference that is gonna empower me to anticipate when am I gonna have a hard time in life and when am I just gonna crush it? When is it gonna be a great strength for me? And if I can embrace this label of autism and accept autism as, yeah, I'm autistic, now all of a sudden I can go make sense of my life in a way that I couldn't before and plan ahead. It's all like, it's almost like before I had that label, it was, you know, I knew I was weird. I knew I was different. I knew there was something a little off with me. I knew that deep down, I was kind of pretending sometimes um, to fit in with my surroundings, but that if anybody really knew who I was, you know, they would, they would totally reject me. And yet knowing that I have autism, there's a name for what I have. All of a sudden my life made so much more sense. I was able to forgive myself, love myself, accept myself in a way I hadn't before. And it was like all of a sudden, instead of this great big wild storm, I had an anchor, an anchor I could rely on, an anchor that would hold me fast and give me ground to walk on so that I could now move on with my life and anticipate, okay, so I have autism. So I'm gonna need to work here on this. I'm gonna need to work here on this. I'm gonna need a system for that, a system for that. But also I should really embrace my special interests here, here and here and my strengths I have here. And eventually, as you get to that point, you look back and every person I've met who's autistic looks back and says, well, I'm glad I have autism. I wouldn't trade that for the world. And when you can get to that point, it's not even a question anymore. You're, you're grateful for the label. And, and autism, you know, it, it's a, it's a nonverbal disability generally. If they can talk, they generally are quite good at verbalizing. It's just those nonverbal side of things that becomes the problem. And so if, if someone has, for instance, say dyslexia or a learning disability, and they make a verbal error, yeah, everybody might laugh and they might even think, oh, you're dumb, or they'll call you dumb, or the person might think that they're dumb. If you make a verbal error, people question your intelligence. But if you make a nonverbal error, people question your sanity. And so a lot of times for people with autism, it's worse. They're like, I'm using the right words, I'm using, but they don't understand the tone of voice, or they don't understand the environmental context, or they don't understand the social context, or they don't understand how their physical appearance, or the time of day, or anything else, or the group of people they're talking to, how that influences the meaning of what they're saying. And so when they get laughed at, they don't even know why they got laughed at, and they often don't even um, have a chance to try and change that, because now that you've made a nonverbal error, 
people are going to step way back because now I can't, I can't understand you or predict you. You might be insane. You might be dangerous. And so even by the time they manage to master some of those nonverbal skills, many people with autism have very deep scars from just constantly feeling that rejection and constantly feeling their sanity questioned. Um, and we'll find as we work with adults with autism, a lot of them have PTSD even from public schooling. Now the good side of that is once they're out of public schooling and they're into adulthood and they're able to um, focus on what they really want to do with their life and with their job and with their education, if they've managed to make it through without too much emotional baggage, now all of a sudden their hands are untied and they're free to focus and really to get amazingly good at you know, engineering or childcare or hairdressing or any number of millions of things that this person's really interested in. And so that's the plus side of it. Right. The downside being that even compared to other disabilities, there's often that pain that comes with the way that people respond to you. So as you're looking at systems and you're the person with autism, your life is this confusing, chaotic mess of all of these overwhelming sensory inputs and all these overwhelming social inputs and all of these demands that the world is putting on you. But if you can take that and say, oh wait, I'm going to create a system here that will allow me to take this complexity and this chaos and make it something understandable and concrete and step-by-step, step, it gives such a sense of certainty and security and safety, which then allows you to and empowers you to go out and do something you wouldn't normally even try before. Because before you can go on to learn and do and try new things or reach out to other people, you've got to feel safe and secure. And so often with autism, we don't. Creating a system creates that security and creates a confidence that comes from knowing I have tools now. So if you can put me in any situation, yeah, some of those situations I'll be much more autistic in the sense of like, you'll see a lot more of my symptomology than others. Um, yeah, stick me in driving and especially driving on an unfamiliar route or an unfamiliar day or an unfamiliar vehicle, you'll see my autism and all of a sudden you'll be like, wow, this person's not very functional at all. But give me time and if it's something I care about and I create a system for, I'm going to be able to do that. And if I'm going into a new situation and I'm armed with a whole toolbox full of systems, then I know that one of these systems is going to work or be close enough that I can just keep tweaking it a little and I'll be able to succeed with that. Um, and that confidence can be anybody's if they're willing to work with those systems. And again, matching it to the developmental level of the person that they're working for, matching it to an outcome that they actually care about and linking it to avoiding pain are three real keys for making a successful system um, because the person has to believe that if I'm learning this new system, you know, that's a little uncertain in and of itself. So before I can learn it well enough for it to become a certainty and a security, I have to be willing to put up with that uncertainty of this new system. Well, I'm only going to do that if I say, yes, but look at all the pain that is likely to be taken away if I can do that. And that might be social pain, that might be physical pain, that might be psychological pain, whatever it happens to be. Um, our brains will do much more to avoid pain than they will to gain pleasure. So link it to avoiding pain, match it to the developmental level, and match it to something that the person really, really wants, an outcome that they actually are motivated to achieve. So let's say that you just got this label, this autism label in your life somehow, some way. The first reaction is often very, very negative. There's a feeling of loss. There's a feeling of grief. There's a feeling of confusion and of hopelessness and of overwhelm. 
and you're trying to figure out how do I move forward when my life will never be what it was before autism. And as I talk with, with families that are dealing with that, I tell them it's fine to mourn, it's great to grieve, but don't mourn for me. Don't mourn for the person with autism. I don't need to be mourned for. I am who I am. Mourn for the child that you didn't get. Mourn for maybe some of those dreams that you and expectations that you had that might have to change or go away. But then once you're done mourning, move on. Love the child you have. Love the person you are. If you're the person with autism, mourn for, yeah, you aren't neurotypical. I mean, and it's okay to let that neurotypical self go. But once you've let it go, you realize there's a freedom in being yourself, that you're not some kind of broken, abnormal thing you were never meant to be. You're you and you're normal for you. And that by being yourself and only by being yourself, you're gonna find tremendous joy and happiness in life. And by letting that child learn who they are and be who they are, they're gonna find tremendous joy and happiness in their life. And you're gonna find that you would never have traded that child for anybody else and that journey with autism for any other journey, because it's an amazing journey. And the outcomes are hope and hopeful. Autism is not a death sentence. It's a developmental delay. It gets better with time. It gets better as we practice and learn tools and systems. And yeah, there are days where it's the hardest thing and it's okay to have those hard days, but there are people out there who can help you, who will support you, who will connect with you. There are all kinds of sources of strength you can draw on that are gonna help you keep moving. Yeah, there's gonna be rough days. Yeah, there's gonna be hardships. Yeah, there's gonna be things that don't come easy. There's gonna be things that never come at all. There's gonna be times you're rejected, times that you're sad, times that everything seems to be against you. But you know what? Every journey has those things, regardless of disability, regardless of ability, regardless of labeling, that's life. So mourn for those losses, but then move on and love what you've got, build on what you have, become who you can become, let that child blossom and grow, and you never know how things are gonna turn out. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation. We now invite you to go to gemtrain.org and gain the additional guidance from this presenter that can help you fully grow and flourish as you gain the skills and confidence to help those you love on the autism spectrum.